Good evening, and welcome to our last tough question of this series. Uh, we started this series back in September, believe it or not, and we've covered a whole range of difficult questions. I hope I've done a, a good and faithful and biblical, most importantly, biblical job of answering these questions. And if you want any, if you want transcripts of any of these, or uh, if you have any questions uh, about anything we've covered, just let me know. But tonight we're going to close with a really important one, and that is, how can we know for certain we're going to heaven? And that's something we all wonder about sometimes. Uh, when I was 26 years old, I became the senior pastor of the little country church I grew up in. First time I'd ever been a pastor before, and I was very young, obviously, to take on all those responsibilities. And I remember later that same year, when I was still 26, a man in our church, a man I'd known my whole life, passed away very suddenly. And I remember the moment uh, I found out. It was July 4th. It was late in the day. The sun was setting, and we were at my grandmother's house, and grandma and grandpa, my parents, Carrie and me, we were all sitting under a spreading oak uh, behind their house and shelling peas and telling stories and drinking Dr. Pepper and iced tea. And the phone in the house started ringing. This was before cell phones. And, or at least before they were common to people like us. And my mom got up and ran to the house to answer it. And when she came back, she had that look in her eyes and that tone in her voice that said something serious had happened. And she said, Doug died today. They don't know how. He was out working and he didn't come back. And someone went out and found him in a field, by, by, you know, slumped over by the side of his truck, dead. And then she looked at me. And she said, you need to go to the house. Now, Doug was in his 50s. Uh, his wife, uh, still a young woman. I didn't know her well. She went to a, another church in town of a different denomination. I'd never done anything like that before. Again, I'm 26 years old, and, and I felt e extremely unqualified to walk up to that front porch, walk up to that front door, and say, I'm here to help. But... I did. I went and knocked on the door. She graciously asked me in and, and told me she was glad I was there. Um, at the end of the evening, she said, I'd like for you to be part of the service. You and the pastor of my church can share the pulpit. And so I prayed really hard about what to say at that funeral service. The day of the funeral, there were so many people at the funeral home, they had to open up one of the side rooms, one of the viewing areas for people to sit in overflow and pipe in the sound. And for my part, I felt led to talk about the story of the thief on the cross in Luke 23. And I, I talked about how this man, this, this person who had never done one thing for God, who had never done one good thing in his life as far as we knew, who was just about to die, who would never accomplish anything for God, this man, at the last moment, changed his mind, changed his ways, asked for God's grace, and Jesus said to him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. And I pointed out that if a man like that, if God's grace could save someone like him, then certainly God's grace was big enough for a man like Doug, who had believed in Jesus for most of his life and tried his best to follow him. And I talked about how I was certain, because I knew Doug well enough to know that his faith was sincere. I was certain that right now he was in heaven. I tried to picture for them what it must have been like the moment Doug breathed his last earthly breath and, and drew his first breath of heavenly air. 
Uh, a good friend of Doug's had died just the month before, and I talked about how I bet he was there to welcome Doug and, and show him around the place, and his parents were there and others who had gone before. And I closed by saying, Doug can't talk to us right now, but I'm sure if he would, I'm sure if he could, he would say, get, your, get yourself right with God, get your heart right with Jesus, because I want you to be here where I am. Now, I'm sure it was not a, a masterful sermon. Uh, I was certainly not an experienced enough preacher to do a great job back then, and yet the response from people was overwhelming. Uh, people kept coming up to me after the service and saying, that was amazing. That was just what I needed to hear. A guy who had gone to high school with me and who also knew Doug came up to me, and this guy had been the epitome of cool in high school, and yet he came up to me with tears in his eyes saying, I'm so glad you said what you said. And even the minister from the other church came to me and said, you know, you're right. I never really thought about it before, but it does say today you'll be with me in paradise. And later that week, when I was at my own church again, a man in our congregation came to me and said, you chose the right scripture to preach on that day. You know, the people who go to that other church, they don't, they're not taught that you can have assurance of salvation. They're taught that you just have to do your best and hope for the best in the end. And you showed them that it's possible to know you're going to heaven. And I said to him, you know, honestly, I didn't even think about that. I just kind of randomly chose a scripture as best I could. God worked all that out. But did he really? Was I right to extend the idea of assurance of salvation? Was I right to pretend that we can know whether we're going to heaven or not? What does the Bible actually say? This is one of the most important of the questions we've talked about in this series as we close out today. Well, let me just start with this. The book of 1 John, the letter of 1 John, ends with these words in 1 John 5.13, or toward the end. It says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. I write these that you may know, that you may know that you have eternal life. John wrote that whole letter for the purpose of giving people assurance of their salvation. So absolutely, and that's not the only evidence, but absolutely it is possible for us to know that we have salvation, to know that we're going to heaven when we die. Not only that, God wants us to have that assurance. So what I want to do with the rest of my time is talk about three myths that people have, three false things they believe when it comes to this idea of assurance of salvation. So number one, Myth number one is, it's arrogant to say you know that you are saved. So if you ask the average person, religious, non-religious, of any background, you just ask them, what does it take to get to heaven when you die? Assuming they're not atheists, assuming they believe there is such a place as the afterlife, they'll probably say something like this, be a good person, follow the rules, be kind to others, believe in God, do your best to be a good person. That's what people commonly believe. I dare say a lot of people sitting in pews in Christian churches would say something similar. That's really, when you boil it all down, in spite of all the various differences between the major world religions, when it gets down to it, it, it all boils down to be a good person, be kind to others. But if that's true, if that's really how you get to heaven, then assurance is impossible. Because who's keeping score? And how do we know what the score is until we stand before that one? As Yogi Berra once said in the midst of a contentious baseball season, it ain't over till it's over. You don't know who's going to win until the game is over, until the season's over, and the final score is shown. 
In the same way, if we believe that we can have assurance of salvation, then we're assuming the, the knowledge of God, which we don't have. I remember some 20 plus years ago, the Baptists in the state of Alabama did this huge study to find out how many lost people there were in the state of Alabama. And the purpose was, we just want to motivate uh, fellow Baptists and fellow Christians to say, look how ripe the fields are for harvest. Look how many people there are who need to know the Lord and need to receive salvation. But it sort of backfired on them because word leaked out to people who weren't Baptists. And soon there were editorials in newspapers. There were T-shirts that people were printing up saying, the Alabama Baptists think I'm lost. And there were all these messages saying, these Baptists here in Alabama are so arrogant. They think they know who's going to heaven and who isn't. Does that charge stick? Are we arrogant for saying that we have assurance of salvation? Well, it depends on what you think salvation really is. If salvation really is a matter of being a good person, then yeah, we're arrogant to say we're saved. But that's not what the Scriptures say. In fact, I'm glad to say this. The Scriptures say only bad people get saved. Only people who are unworthy of heaven get the grace of God. Um, Paul wrote in his last letter in the New Testament, 2 Timothy 1.12, he wrote these words, For I know whom I have believed, and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. In other words, my faith is not in me, my faith is in God. My faith is in Jesus. He is able to rescue me. At the end of the letter, he writes these words, 2 Timothy 4.18, The Lord will deliver me safely to his heavenly kingdom. Notice, Paul doesn't say, because I have done these things, because I have fought the good fight, finished the course, and kept the faith, therefore I will go to heaven. No, he says, the Lord will deliver me. The Lord will take me there. He's putting his faith in Jesus, not in himself. Paul, more than anybody else, was aware of his own sinfulness, his own inability to rescue his own soul. And so should we be. I'll tell you another person who was aware of that same lack of ability to save ourselves, and that's a guy named John Newton. John Newton was the author of the hymn Amazing Grace. That's what we know him for. Probably the most popular, well-loved hymn in the English language. But before that, John Newton was a wretched man. I mean, when he says that saved a wretch like me, he is, he's speaking from experience. John Newton, uh, was a, he worked on a slave ship for many years, going from England to Africa, and then from there to the Caribbean, carrying kidnapped people to spend the rest of their lives working as slaves in the rum fields and, and, and other kinds of fields in the Caribbean. And later he became captain of a slave ship. And I, you read his biography, and you're talking about a man who was reprehensible in every way. And then Jesus came into his life. And John Newton's life turned around dramatically. He not only became a preacher of the gospel, he not only became a person who wrote hymns and poems that glorified God, but he, he became a passionate advocate for the abolition of slavery. And John Newton, late in his life, when he was an elderly man and, and his faculties were starting to fade away, he said these words. This is one of his most famous quotes. He said, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. See, our assurance is because of those two facts. Really, those are the only two facts. When you boil it all down, the Christian gospel boils down to those two things. And that's all you really need to know. If you know those two things, then you're saved. And you can have assurance. You are a, bad, a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Second myth that people believe 
about assurance of salvation. That is, assurance leads to spiritual laziness. See, the first myth I talked about, that, that assurance is arrogance, that, that usually comes from people who are not Christians, looking at us saying, how can you say you're going to heaven? But this second myth, that assurance leads to spiritual laziness, that usually comes from within the church, from among Christian people. Historically, that's been something that has been a charge that's been leveled against the gospel all along. Uh, so the, the idea goes like this. If we assure people that they're saved, if we tell people, oh, God loves you and he would never shut you out of his kingdom, then they'll grow complacent. They'll stop coming to church. They'll stop praying. They'll stop repenting of sins. They'll stop serving and giving. And they'll just say, well, you know, God's got to forgive me because that's the kind of God he is. See, that's the same charge that people placed before Jesus and Paul. When Jesus was preaching to tax collectors and prostitutes and other sinners, the, the religious people of the time came to him and said, how can you do this? How can you walk around forgiving their sins? Don't you want them to straighten up and get their act right and then they'll come to you? And Jesus' response was, only the sick need a doctor. I have not come to call righteous people but sinners. Like I said earlier, only bad people get the grace of God. Only sinners get salvation. When Paul writes the book of Romans, Romans is his long treatise on the gospel itself. Romans chapters 3 through 5 are all about the idea of justification through faith, which was a revolutionary idea at the time. This idea that there is literally nothing you can do to earn salvation. Instead, it is a free gift. The, the, moment, or the moment you become a child of God, you are declared absolutely righteous in His sight. And that's, again, that's something that blew people away. And so... He, he, he takes three chapters in Romans to talk about this incredible idea, and then he starts chapter 6 with these words. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace might increase? Paul is, is quoting his qu critics there. He's, you know, the critics have said, oh, apparently, if you believe this gospel of Paul and Jesus, then you can go out and sin all you want because that'll just make more grace happen. Paul says, should we go on sinning so that grace might increase? By no means. Literally, he says, God forbid it. He says, we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? What Paul's saying is, when you receive the grace of God, not only does it justify you and, and forgive you forever, but it also changes your heart. And you don't, you don't want to go back to the way you were before. You want to embrace this new life, this, this born-again life that Jesus told Nicodemus about. So if, if you say you're saved, but in your heart of hearts, you don't want a new life, if you think, I can just sin all I want because God's duty-bound to forgive, then maybe you haven't really tasted the grace of God. So think about it this way. Think about two dads who both are raising sons. And both dads want to see their sons grow up and be successful uh, and live fulfilling lives and accomplish some things and make their mark in the world. And the first dad thinks that his, his way of making sure that happens is by withholding any affection or affirmation from his son, making sure his son earns everything he gets. And so when the son strikes out with the bases loaded in the Little League game and the team loses, the dad drives home and leaves his son there and basically says, hey, you can find your own way home. Walk if you have to. When the son brings home a report card with all A's but one B, the dad calls him a miserable failure and says you'll never accomplish anything if you can't even make all A's in elementary school. When as a teenager the boy gets his heart broken by his first girlfriend, 
the father comes up to him and says, well, you better toughen up, buddy, because the world, this world is no place for snowflakes. It'll eat you for lunch if you let something like this get you down. You've got much harder things ahead for you. The second dad has a very different approach. Yes, he is faithful to discipline his son when his son does wrong. Yes, he is, he is courageous enough and disciplined enough to make, make sure his son experiences some of the difficulties of life on his own and works his way through some problems. He's not shielding his son, but at the same time, when his son fails, he makes sure at all times, I love you. You will never not be my boy, and I will never not be your father. So no matter what you do, if you fail or you succeed, I will be there for you. Now let me ask you, which of those two boys is going to grow up and lead the more successful and fulfilling life? My money's on that second dad. Because love, love that goes far enough uh, to, to push us, to discipline us, but at the same time to constantly affirm us, that's the kind of love that produces true character. God is a good father. He's not a cruel dad up on a hilltop saying, you, if you can get to me, I may share a little of my bounty with you. No, he is a good father who walks alongside us and wants us at all times to know, I love you. No matter what, I will always, always love you. So there's a third myth, and that is, if you're saved, you'll never doubt it. And I, I know there are a lot of Christians who experience this one. Uh, I know it because I've heard it from them in my ministry on, on many occasions. Uh, people who almost all the time, in fact, I can say without exception, every one of these people has been someone who I considered extremely sincere, uh, warm-hearted, true believer in Jesus, faithful servant, and yet they'll come to me and say, you know, I don't like to tell anybody this, but I'm just not sure I'm really saved. I think back to when I prayed the prayer of salvation, and I don't know if I was completely sincere. You know, maybe maybe my heart wasn't fully in it at the time. Or yeah, I got baptized, but I was I was such a little kid. I don't even know what I was thinking at the time. Was I just doing it to please my parents? Was I doing it because my friends got baptized? Am I really saved? I don't know. And, and honestly, a lot of preachers have capitalized on this. A lot of preachers have made this worse by saying things like, boy, if you have any doubts about your salvation, walk the aisle today, let's get this nailed down. And that's, that's a very self-serving thing for a preacher to say because it makes his baptism numbers look good. It makes it look like he's bringing people into the kingdom. But I want you to ask yourself the question, why would John write the letter of 1 John if it weren't possible for saved people to doubt? If doubts were an indication that you weren't really saved, wouldn't, wouldn't John write the letter that says, hey, I have written this letter so that you who doubt your salvation can know you need to repent. Instead, he says, I have written this so that you might know that you have eternal life. See, that tells me right there, it's very possible for a person who is in God's family to experience moments of doubt. And I've got even better evidence than that. In Matthew 11, one of my favorite stories, little known story, honestly, about John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is uh, one of the boldest, most courageous people in human history. And yet, in Matthew 11, it tells the story of him sending messengers from where he is, where he's imprisoned by Herod for criticizing the king. And the messengers go to Jesus and say, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? 
which is an amazing thing for John to ask. After all, John was literally the first person to recognize Jesus for who he was. When John was just an infant uh, or an unborn child in his mother's womb, he leaped in Elizabeth's womb when Mary walked in carrying the unborn Jesus. Later on, John is the one who pointed out Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John is the one who gave his own followers permission to follow Jesus instead of him. John is the one who came to prepare the way for Jesus, and now he's experiencing doubts? You would expect Jesus, when he hears that message, to respond with something like this. You go back and tell John that he needs to, he needs to get his act together because there's no room in my family uh, for people who doubt me. But John, Jesus doesn't say that. Instead, he says, go back and tell John that the blind see and the lame, heal, the lame are healed and the dead are, are raised to life and, and I am preaching the gospel. In other words, Jesus says, show him evidence that everything is the way it ought to be. You can imagine where John's doubts came from. All he was doing was trying to stay faithful to God and he thought Jesus was Messiah and here John, a man who's trying to stay faithful to God, gets thrown in prison and is on the chopping block to have his head removed. John, in his own mind, thought, well, it shouldn't be this way if Messiah is here. Jesus doesn't criticize him for those thoughts. Instead, he sends him assurance. And then he says to the crowd, hey, y'all remember John, right? He's the best person that's ever lived. Nobody's ever lived that's more faithful than him. So far from Jesus being angry at John for expressing his doubts, far from Jesus criticizing John for his doubts, Jesus upholds John and says, this is the guy you need to be like. So doubts are not an indication of a lack of salvation. Now, I know some would say to me, okay, Jeff, all this stuff about assurance is great. I get the evidence you're presenting, but doesn't the Bible also tell us that there will be people on Judgment Day who will find out that they weren't really saved? Won't there be some nasty surprises on the Day of Judgment? And yes, there will. The Bible talks about this on several occasions. Probably the most famous is Matthew 7, 22 through 23. These are the words of Jesus. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And that may be the most terrifying sentence that's ever been written because it's, it's talking about something that's actually going to happen. There will be people who will stand before God in judgment thinking they're in, but finding out that they're not. And if that bothers you, which it should, if that makes you question, which it should, let me just say two things to you, just to help us understand how that can be in the scriptures at the same time as the other things I've talked about earlier. Question number one, what are you trusting in? What are you really trusting in? Note that in Jesus's parable, the people who come to Christ, they're listing their credentials. They're saying, look at all the stuff I did for you, Lord. Look at all the miracles I performed, all the people I helped all the good deeds I did. And the truth is that's not enough. Now, I know it sounds ridiculous to say this, but it's true. If I were able to become the greatest preacher who ever walked the earth, if I were able to preach such powerful messages and lead a church so effectively that millions of people came to salvation through my teaching and leadership, that still wouldn't be enough. If I were able to, to become the wealthiest man on earth and then donate all that money to the church and to Christian causes, that wouldn't be enough. If I were to lay down my life as a martyr for the cause, that wouldn't be enough. We can't do anything. If we're trusting in our good deeds, then we're lost. Let me put it another way. If right now the source of your salvation 
If, if you say, I know I'm going to heaven because I'm a better person than most people I know, because I abstain from those really bad vices. I've never killed anybody. I've never treat, cheated on my spouse. Uh, I've never molested children. I've, I've never stolen huge amounts of money. If, if you're trusting in the fact that you do some good deeds or you go to church on Sundays, if you're trusting in the fact that at a certain age you went through a religious ritual, whether it's baptism or confirmation, if you're trusting in any of those things, that's not enough. But on the other hand, if you're trusting in the fact that Jesus is gracious enough and powerful enough to rescue even a sinner like you or me, then you're saved, period. No matter what else you've done, no matter how many times you've strayed, no matter how faithless your heart might be, if you're trusting in Jesus to save you, then you're saved. I'm a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. Second thing, read the Gospels. Read the Gospels and notice, Jesus doesn't come to people in the Gospels and say, here's this little prayer you need to pray, and if you pray it with sincerity, you'll go to heaven when you die. Jesus doesn't say, hey, come and get baptized, and then you'll know you have eternal life. No, the invitation of Jesus is consistent. He says, follow me. And the reason I'm saying that is, I think we're getting the question wrong. And part of it is because of how we were trained to share the gospel when we were kids and the preaching we heard growing up. But we, we don't really need to go back and reinterpret or, or, or re, uh, reinterrogate our, our former selves and say, when I was nine, when I prayed that prayer of salvation, or when I was 16, when I got baptized, or, or when I was 23, when I walked the aisle, did I really know what I was doing? Was I really sincere? That's not the question. The question is, am I following Jesus today? That's what really matters. Am I following him? Not am I perfect, but am I choosing to submit to Him in every area of my life? Am I doing my best to follow Him and to live out His teachings and to be the, the hands and feet of Christ, to love my neighbors and to live out His purpose for me in life? Now, is it possible that there are some people listening to me right now who really need to stand up before our church or even before your life group? That may be even more important and say, y'all, I've been living, living a, a lie. I've been pretending to be this great Christian, and secretly I've been living for myself, but today that's going to change. Y'all hold me accountable to this. I'm going to start following Jesus faithfully. I'm going to start submitting to Him in every area of my life. I'm going to start loving my enemies, and I'm going to start being generous and kind and selfless, and, and y'all hold me accountable to this. Pray for me in this. Does that need to happen? I have no doubt it does need to happen for a lot of us. And in fact, when that starts happening, that's when you know revival's actually breaking out. But that's not the same as saying, oh, I don't think I was saved when I, when I prayed the prayer, so I need to pray the prayer again. I don't, I don't know that I was baptized. I don't know that I was really saved when I got baptized, so I better be baptized again. The question is, are you following Jesus now? Just focus on that. Submit to him now. Let me, let me just leave you with this. I had a conversation with a young man several months ago. Um, this was a young man who grew up in church and then as a young adult walked away and no longer considers himself Christian. And I was asking him why, what changed? And he said, well, I, I honestly think it's ridiculous for Christians to teach that God is up there in heaven shutting people out of heaven because they chose the wrong religion. For me, that seems like a ridiculous reason to keep people from eternal life. And I had to think about my response very carefully, and I took my time. And here's what I said, and, and I think God gave me this answer. I hope, I hope I'm right about it. I said, I don't think that's how it works. 
said the Bible teaches that God loves us so much that he became a man. A man who came into this world and lived a sinless life and then died in our place. And a God who loves us that much doesn't sound like the kind of God who's looking for technicalities to keep us out of his heaven. Instead, it sounds to me like the kind of God who's doing everything possible to get as many of us as possible in. And he said, well, that really doesn't sound like what I was taught when I was growing up. And I say it to you, if you're worried about your salvation, think about what Jesus has done for you. Think about the death he died for you. Not based on any future reward, not based on any, uh, any future in, uh, dividend you were going to give him. He died for you while you and I were still sinners, while we were, in fact, his enemies. Now, a God who loves you that much, does that sound like the kind of God who's looking for a reason to keep you out of heaven? I say no. I say that's a God who is looking forward to sharing his infinite joy and love and grace and, and fulfillment with you and me for all of eternity. Now, next week, we're going to start a new Bible study on Wednesday nights, and I'll let you know what that is, so tune in here. But I think that's a great way to end this series, don't you? Amen. Amen.